Thank you, music team. Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you. Um, do please uh, take a moment to find the Bible readings on page 184 and uh, also just to have the outline in the bulletin in front of you as I think that will be helpful and I'm going to ask for the Lord's grace as we look at his word together. Our God and Father, we know that only when you open a door for the word into our hearts can your word enter and truly change us. And so we pray that as we come to your word now, that you would do that great work of opening that door into each heart here. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in, uh, in August 2012, archaeologists from the University of Tel Aviv uh, announced the discovery of a small circular stone seal. It's very small, it's about 15 millimetres in diameter, that's about half an inch across. Uh, they found it on the floor of a house in Beth Shemesh, and it appears to show <coughs> a long-haired man slaying a lion. Now Beth Shemesh is near Timnah, which is the scene of all the action in Judges chapter 14. And archaeologists have dated the seal to the 12th century before Christ, which is of course the time when the judges ruled. Professor Shlomo Bunimovitz, I hope he'll forgive my pronunciation, he said that the find helps to anchor the story of Samson in an archaeological setting. Now that's rather wonderful, isn't it? Um, it's a fascinating reminder from outside of the Bible that Judges 13 to 16 is history. But what a strange history it is. Um, on the surface, I think our passage this morning is a little bit disappointing. Um, after all the amazing nativity story that we read about last week in chapter 13, we're expecting marvellous things to happen. Um, you remember at the end of chapter 13, we saw that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in Samson while he was still at his hometown. And so I think as chapter 14 begins, we're expecting that Israel is going to get back on track spiritually. But uh, in the eyes of many people, Samson here makes a colossal mess of everything. Uh, he starts by wanting to marry a Philistine woman. Well, that's pretty awful. Uh, then he touches a dead body, even though he's a Nazarite and not supposed to do that. He then acts with unprovoked savagery against 30 men from Ashkelon. Uh, he shows wanton cruelty to foxes, no doubt the animal rights campaigners want to have him up for that. And he shows total disrespect, doesn't he, for other people's property. In fact, he behaves with such wild violence that one writer says that he is like an uncontrolled juvenile delinquent. 
And this particular commentator goes on to describe Samson's prayer at the end of chapter 15 as no more than a childish outburst. I mean, so why are we even bothering to learn about Samson? Why don't we go on to Ephesians? Might be more interesting. He really does seem, doesn't he, to be the saviour that no one asked for and that no one wanted. But having said that, it's really rather strange, isn't it, that three times over we are explicitly told that the Spirit of the Lord came on him in power. That's what the text says. And it's very important for our understanding to see it. Won't you please notice these three references with me? Uh, The first is there in chapter 14, verse 6. Can we see verse 6? The Spirit of the Lord came on him in power. It's there again in verse 19. The Spirit of the Lord came on him in power. And it's uh, also in chapter 15 and verse 14. The Spirit of the Lord came on him in power. Now you see, it's as if God is saying, whatever you might be thinking, I am with this man. And God says it three times. And then you've got that rather strange statement in chapter 14, verse 4. It says, his parents did not know that this, that is to say his marriage plan, that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. In other words, Samson's plan to marry this totally unsuitable girl was from the Lord. And our passage ends uh, at the end of chapter 15 with this most spectacular answer to Samson's prayer. So having looked at all of that, I don't think we can say that these two chapters are really about Samson being a bit of a thug. No, they're actually about God as deliverer. Now, of course, I know that we're not ruled by the Philistines. But, you know, our culture is every bit as ungodly and as unrighteous And uh, if you and I are going to live for Christ in the current spiritual climate in South Africa without being swamped by the unrighteousness that's all around us, then I think you and I need to know a God who doesn't simply sit on the touchline. We need a God who delivers his people in all the messy realities of life in a mad bad world. So what can we find in this text to guide us and to encourage us this morning? Well, first we find God's sovereign purpose. God's sovereign purpose. You see, the root of all the events in these chapters is the purpose of God. Uh, We saw that last week, didn't we? But just glance back with me to chapter 13 and verse 5. Because in that verse, the the angel of the Lord said to Samson's mother, the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel 
from the hands of the Philistines. Now you see, that is God's agenda. And we mustn't lose sight of that as we read the rest of the story. And then you've got that comment at the end of chapter 13. Can you see it? That the Lord blessed Samson and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Now that is not a casual comment. We're not at liberty to say that the spirit of the Lord went away from Samson at the beginning of chapter 14 because we've just seen that the spirit of the Lord keeps reappearing in these two chapters. So I think what we've got here is the passion of God at work. It was actually a passion that nobody else shared in Israel. And we need to see this in context because there are three very telling references. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 4 says that at this time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. In other words, the people of God were ruled by pagans. Then in chapter 15, verse 11... Uh, the Israelites themselves say to Samson, don't you realise that the Philistines are rulers over us? And then in the very last verse of chapter 15, uh, it says there, doesn't it, that Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So friends, you see, this is an Israel ruled by Philistines. These are Philistine days in Israel. Now in our passage, the the action begins in Timnah, which is about 20 miles west of Jerusalem. Uh, It's well inside the borders of Israel. But Timnah is thoroughly Philistine. The Philistines have, have infiltrated the land that God gave to Israel. And it's been going on for so long that Philistine rule is considered to be totally normal. The Israelites aren't bothered about it. In fact, nobody's bothered about it, except God. And you know, even today as we read this story, can I suggest that many Christians are likely to be far more upset about what happens to the foxes than about what happens to the people of God. But the God of the Bible is actually far more concerned about the people of God than he is about the foxes. And so I think you see here the passion in God's heart. And it's a passion that you and I need to share. So can I ask you, do you share God's passion for his people? In our context, that means do you share... God's passion in some measure for your brothers and sisters in church this morning because you need that if you're going to understand the message of chapters 14 and 15. Now I know that Samson's desire to marry a Philistine girl is a pretty strange starting point but that is precisely why we've got the writer's comment in chapter 14 verse 4. So if we ask ourselves, why on earth was Samson wanting to marry this totally unsuitable girl? The answer in verse 4 is that 
The Lord was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson's parents didn't know it, but we do. Now, it actually wasn't God's intention that Samson should go all the way to the altar with this girl. Rather, it was God's intention that Samson's preparation to marry her would create the opportunity for an effective challenge to Philistine power. And you see, in these chapters, what we see is God so overruling the arrangements leading up to the marriage that actually at the end of chapter 14, the bride is given to the best man. Have you ever been to a wedding before where the bride is given to the best man? I haven't. And the consequence of Samson's plans, you see, was three confrontations with the Philistines which frustrated Philistine authority in Israel. And so from this very, very unpromising beginning, Samson ends up at the end of chapter 15 leading or judging Israel for 20 years. At the beginning, Israel have completely surrendered to Philistine rule. That wasn't God's plan. But by the end, God has orchestrated an effective challenge to Philistine domination. Now, you may look at this and say, well, hang on a moment, Simon, this is a really messy story. I want to suggest to you that the message of the text is, what a sovereign God. And friends, isn't that what you and I need to know this morning? That God is at work in our messed up world. I mean, isn't your life sometimes so complicated, so confused by your own failings and the failings of the people around you and your own struggle to live a consistent Christian life? I know my life is like that. And so you see, I need a God who can cope with the muddle and the complexity and the messes of life and still achieve his purpose. I know that I need a God like that. I wonder if you do too. And you see, if you and I are going to take offence at a God who uses Samson's rather questionable wedding plans in order to accomplish his purpose, well, are we also going to take offence at the God who uses the wicked heart of Judas? the cowardice of his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, the malice of the religious establishment and the cruel practices of the Romans to accomplish salvation for the whole world. Are we going to say, what a mess? Or are we going to say, what a sovereign God? Well, I hope you know the answer. So here we have God's sovereign purpose. Then secondly, in this passage, we have God's sovereign protection. Now this is absolutely fascinating because at the beginning of chapter 14, we have an attack. Look at verse 5. 
Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. Now what's at stake here? I mean, is this just an interesting dramatic incident to keep us focused? No, it isn't. Think about it. Samson is the deliverer raised up by God. And before he's even touched a single Philistine, someone's trying to take him out. Isn't that what's really going on? Isn't this actually rather like that day when Herod sent his men into Bethlehem with orders to kill all the small boys? Isn't this actually Satan trying to destroy the deliverer before he even begins? And I wonder if the Apostle Peter was thinking about precisely this incident when he wrote in his first letter to Christians when he was urging them to be vigilant uh, in the face of persecution, and he said this. He said, Be controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Well, this lion certainly wants to devour Samson. But uh, one writer, Alec Mateer, puts it rather well when he says, Did ever a lion make a greater error of judgment? Because, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have done with a young goat. Now, we need to think about this. If I ask you for a moment to picture Samson in your mind, what would he look like? Can I suggest that centuries of Christian art have conditioned most of us to see Samson as kind of naturally strong with a tremendously impressive physique? Arnold Schwarzenegger on steroids. But... Does the text say that? Does the text encourage us to think that Samson should be in all the adverts for Virgin Active? Does it say that in your Bible? You see, for all we know, at this point in Samson's life, he might have been an eight-stone weakling. Because what the text actually says is that the source of his strength was the Spirit of the Lord coming on him in power at precisely the right moment. Have you ever thought of that before? See, God is protecting him and he's also teaching Samson that God could give him strength beyond human imagination. Now, friends, can I ask you, what sort of God do you have? Do you have a God who can only give you a limited amount of strength? Or do you actually have a God who can give you a strength beyond this world? You see, God knows how to keep his own children. 
Do you remember that incident at the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus when he's, he's just preached in the synagogue uh, in Nazareth and the crowd try and throw him off a cliff? Do you remember that? Beginning of Luke's Gospel. But Jesus walked unscathed through the crowd because his time had not yet come. They couldn't touch him. God protected Jesus and he protects us too. I suspect we probably don't have a clear enough idea in our minds about just how far God protects his servants. Now there's a marvellous example of that. I wonder if you know the story in 2 Kings chapter 6 of Elisha's servant in a village called Dothan. Do you remember that? 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17. You don't need to turn it up, you can look at it later. But Elisha and his servant are surrounded by the armies of the king of Aram and Elisha's servant is absolutely terrified. And the text says that Elisha prayed... O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. And it goes on. So God opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, why are, why are we told these things in the Bible? Surely, it's so that we would know that God can keep us safe in the day of evil. And his, his eye watches over us, even in a time of apparent disaster. And we can know that our God is still in control. So here we have God's sovereign purpose. We have God's sovereign protection. And thirdly, God's sovereign empowering. <clears throat> now, the, the marriage feast leads to uh, three confrontations with the Philistines. Uh, the first is when Samson takes 30 garments that he owes to his wedding companions. Uh, the second is that attack on Philistine property and the crops and then the subsequent death of the woman and her father, and Samson slaughtering the men responsible. And then finally, the Philistines get their act together, and they raise a great army to pursue Samson. And Samson, you remember there, is, is bound in ropes by his own people. But in verse 14, he, he faces the Philistines, he breaks the ropes... And armed only with a jawbone, he kills a thousand men. Now, I have to say that none of this has endeared Samson to the commentators. Uh, one of them says that this was an orgy of destruction. Another one describes Samson as a thug, as if he should have been thoroughly ashamed of having this strength and as if the Spirit of the Lord had no business turning him into a monster like this. But you see, the strange thing is that it is the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God, who empowers Samson again and again and again. 
I think the best commentary on judges, if you're looking for one, is by Dale Ralph Davis, and he says this, the text is clear. What we're dealing with here is not Samson's temper, but the Spirit's power. If this seems brutal, we must simply live with it. Because to be delivered from evil will frequently be messy. I think that's right. Now, if we're going to understand what this means for us this morning, we've got to understand the context. Now, think about it. Is there anybody else you can think of in Scripture who received physical power, physical strength like this? Because I can't think of one. So why was Samson given this kind of power? Well, consider the other judges that we've looked at in our series. You remember Ehud? Uh, He was able to raise an entire army. Uh, Barak was able to mobilise 10,000 Israelites to fight the Canaanites. And Gideon, although he only ended up with 300, he started out with 32,000. And Jephthah also raised an army of Israelites. But Samson never had one single Israelite who was willing to fight alongside him. Not one, ever. That's not because there wasn't an Israelite army, because you'll notice in chapter 15 and verse 11 that there were 3,000 men of Judah. But what are they doing? Are they going to come alongside the deliverer that God has raised up? Actually, no, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? Because in verse 11, they complain to Samson, don't you realise that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? And then in verse 12, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Now, isn't that interesting? Their set purpose is to hand over God's deliverer to their enemies. Now, is that ringing any bells with you? Because it should. Who betrayed Christ? One of his disciples. Who handed him over to the Romans for execution? Well, it was the religious leaders in Israel. Who shouted, crucify, crucify? Well, it was a crowd of Jews demanding the death of their deliverer. And it had all happened before as the men of Judah handed Samson over to death in Judges chapter 15. Sometimes you'll hear Christians saying, Uh, one plus God is a majority. Have you ever heard that phrase? Have you ever had to prove it? Well, Samson did. He did it again and again because in every battle that Samson fought, it was Samson and God alone. And I think perhaps that's the reason why Hebrews 11.32 records Samson as one of the heroes of faith. 
You see, God made Samson quite literally into a one-man army because there was no one else who would stand up with him against the Philistines. And Samson proved that the, the God who delivers is sovereign to empower. Now, don't you and I need to know that? You see, ultimately, salvation works like this. Um, It's not about you and me defeating Satan. Uh, The network evangelism that Alita was talking about in Family Focus is not about you and I winning our family and friends for God in our own strength. Because God has already raised up one man to confront and defeat Satan. And so think about it. As Samson went out alone, so on another day, Christ went out alone to Calvary to confront the powers of evil. And it is there on the cross that one man won the victory over all the powers of evil. And can I suggest that this this empowering by the Spirit that was given to Samson is a huge encouragement for us. I mean, not that we should necessarily expect God to give us huge physical strength, although he might. Have you ever uh, drawn up a, a list of the gifts of the Spirit? I think some of you probably have done that. When you did, was huge physical strength on the list? Possibly not. But you see, here it is. Perhaps we should be asking uh, the young adults to pray for huge physical strength. But the point is that the Spirit's anointing of Samson was exactly what matched the needs of his situation. That is the point. The lesson for us is not that we need to be hugely physically strong. No, the lesson is that God, by his Spirit, can come on us with power and equip us with precisely what we need to deal with the particular problems we're dealing with now. And I know that some of you are facing really hard things. Problems at work, problems at home, problems in your relationships, money problems, health problems. What do you need? You need the empowering of the Spirit of God for your particular circumstances. That is what God gave Samson and he can give it to us as well. So are you with me so far? The reason that God has caused this extraordinary story to be preserved for us in Scripture is to encourage us to put our trust in God's sovereign purpose and in God's sovereign protection and in God's sovereign empowering and and fourthly and finally, in God's sovereign provision. 
Chapter 15 ends with two aspects of God's provision for Samson. The first provision is in the crisis. Come with me to verses 18 and 19, chapter 15. Verse 18, because Samson was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you've given your servant this great victory, must I die now of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived, so the spring was called Enhakore, and it is still there in Lehi. Now the context here is the battle is over. Uh, Samson has swung this jawbone with such devastating effect that he's managed to kill a thousand Philistines. He's totally shattered, absolutely desperate for water. He cries out to God in prayer. And as I said at the beginning, one of the commentators describes this as a childish outburst. But I wonder if that's fair. You see, Samson begins in his prayer by by acknowledging that it was God who gave him the victory. And in the Hebrew, it's actually very emphatic because in verse 18, he addresses God twice. He says, you, you have given your servant this great victory. And now he pleads with God. If God has rescued him in this this crisis battle with the Philistines, won't he now rescue him in this battle with thirst? Now think about it. I mean, if you were dying of thirst, I'm not sure that you would spend some time polishing up your prayer simply to please a future generation of commentators sitting comfortably in their study with plenty of water and a cup of coffee. No, no, it it is desperate language because his situation is desperate. I mean, what would you expect if you were dying of thirst? Have you ever prayed a desperate prayer like this? Because if you have, you'll know that it's, it's not necessarily the prayer that you would pray on Sunday morning in church. No, it's, it's driven by this, this desperate sense of need. And, and you plead with God with great earnestness. And look at the answer in verse 19. God opened up the place, the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned And he revived. Now, don't we need to pray like Samson if this is what happens when you do? Surely we need to learn that God answers those who cry out passionately to him. Because God can sustain us in the crisis. But not only in the crisis... He also sustains us in the long term. Come with me to the very last verse of chapter 15. The last verse says, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now I expect your eyes, like mine, when I first read it, your eyes just sort of slide over that and you say, well I've seen something like this before, not very interesting really. Go to the end of chapter 16. 
Can you see the very last words at the end of chapter 60? It says, Samson had led Israel 20 years. Now, isn't that interesting? You and I didn't think it was very important, but the Holy Spirit says it twice. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. You see, what we've got in these chapters is a selective account of Samson's years. But the summary at the end of chapter 15 and again at the end of chapter 16 is important. Because for 20 years, Samson served the Lord in leading Israel through difficult days. You see, what it's saying is that the God who delivers, not only provides in the crisis, but he also provides for long-term service over many years. Now that's true for every Christian. Starting out in the Christian life is important. Some people never get that far. You've got to begin. If you haven't yet begun, can I encourage you to begin a new life with Jesus today? And if you don't know how to do that, come and speak to me or one of the team afterwards. You've got to begin. But the Lord Jesus says that it's the person who stands firm to the end who is saved. And all of us in church this morning need the grace of God to persevere in the Christian life through all of the years to the end. And in the moments when you feel that you might be losing your way, and you will have those moments, you must cry out to the Lord, as Samson does here, and ask him to quench your thirst. Not with physical water, not with H2O, but with living water. And he will do it. But can I close by saying that I think there's a special word of encouragement here for those of you training for Christian leadership. Samson's leadership was flawed. It was far from perfect. My leadership is flawed and far from perfect and so will yours be. But you see, as God provided everything necessary to sustain Samson's leadership over 20 years in very difficult days. He can provide everything that you and I need in order to persevere in leadership over the long term as well. So if that's you, when the going gets tough and you're tempted to give up on yourself and you're tempted to give up on your Christian leadership, Remember Samson. More particularly, remember Samson's God. Because his God is our God. And he is absolutely sovereign over everything in our mad, bad world. He's sovereign in his purpose to save a people for himself He's sovereign to protect us against the power of the enemy. 
He's sovereign to empower us according to our needs and he's sovereign to provide both in the moment of crisis and for perseverance in the long term. So may the God of Samson deliver us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we worship you that you are so much more awesome than our minds can really grasp. Thank you for the passion that burns in your heart for your people, even when no one else seems to share it. And for your longing that your kingdom should come as it certainly will. And Father, we pray that in all the challenges we might be facing this week, challenges that might seem overwhelming, even impossible, we pray that you would give us grace to know the power of the God of Samson in all our dealings. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.